Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Plant Services Tool Belt Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to kick off a new series called Meet Your Contributing Editors. And today we have with us Jeff Shiver, CMRP, who is the founder and managing principal at People and Processes Incorporated. Jeff guides people to achieve success in maintenance and reliability practices using common sense approaches, and he's also a contributing editor for Plant Services. He's the author of two columns to date, uh, his current department from the plant floor, where he reports what he's seeing and hearing from a very practical hands-on perspective. And also, he's got a library of columns called Ask Jeff, where he answers your questions about uh, job advice, job situations, uh, the great troubleshooting column. Also, I want to say that Jeff and his associate at People and Processes, Tammy Pickett, were two of the first people that I ever met when I first joined Plant Services in 2014 and knew virtually nobody. So I've appreciated his friendship and Tammy's friendship and guidance these last eight years. Um, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And thank you for the introduction. It was, you know, it was wonderful. It's been a huge pleasure on my part knowing you for those eight years. Yeah, it, every time we get a chance to meet at events, not only is it a great conversation and great to hang out with you, but uh, you know, I, I take I always take away something to learn from and think about until the next time we meet. So I, you know, I, I really enjoy our conversations too. Well, it, one of the things that I took away um, from your presentations, maybe we can start here. Uh, it's one of my favorite sayings of yours. It's backlogs should not have birthdays, and I know we're kind of jumping into the some of the details real quick, but I want to point out to our listeners, too. This is Jeff's approach to his profession here. Jeff's got a really accessible, practical, memorable way of phrasing tips and best practices that make you want to do better. Um, so maybe we can start with that. Where where did the phrase backlog and I have birthdays come from? Honestly, I don't remember, you know, and what happened with that is that. I was working with the client and something came up around the birthdays and, 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 you know, we just were able to make the relationship between the two. And mm-hmm. it's so real because, you know, if you think about it, many organizations, for example, will only report backlog that is less than six months. And, you know, some some organizations, what they'll do is they hold items in the, in the CMMS as placeholders. So it might be some capital project they want to do in the future and other things, but, in reality, you know, if it's sitting in there for more than a year, you're not going to do it. And one of the biggest challenges we have is keeping the database clean, scrubbing the database appropriately, so that ultimately we can use that data to make good business decisions. And so that's a really key piece for us is how do we make sure we do it in the right way? And again, you know, it's a challenge. You know, I mean, it truly is a challenge. I go so many places where they don't go do a good job. I just did an assessment at a major university, and as part of that, we had the conversation, the very same conversation, and they said, well, we've got a ton of work orders out there that we just haven't had time to close. The supervisor said, I've got them. I, I know they're there. I just need to close them. The work's been done, but the problem is, is again, you know, we're not managing the, the data from a business perspective. We're not helping maintenance engineering, reliability engineering improve the processes when we don't do that, when we, when we fail to close items, you know, and have lots of backlog. Go ahead. I'll say one more thing around the backlog piece. Interestingly enough, you know, we we often measure backlog in terms of work orders. 
In reality, we need to think about it in terms of workload hours. Is a job two hours or is it 200 hours? And so I, what we really want the planner to do is do a quick estimate when the work order comes in. Is this two hours, 200, eight hours, whatever? And then we can come back later and plan it in more detail. But no, it's a key piece for us to understand what is truly the backlog. You know? That's a good point. And I mean, a backlog of that size just has the effect on the plant teams of, of, of this sort of crushing weight. You know, at some point, people just real people may come to work realizing, oh, you know, another crisis day. We're never going to get ahead of this. Uh, we'll just do our best. And it it becomes more of a drudge than a pleasure to do this, uh, this kind of work then. <laughs> so true. So true. Well, I may I want to look at your uh, your most recent column for from the plant floor. You talked about FMEAs and the way that you were uh, trained by a couple of folks uh, to do them. Um, and part of your column focused on how to take an FMEA up from the asset level and look more at the line of the plant level. I thought that was really great a way to look at it. Uh, for those listening, I'll put the link to that column in the podcast comments area. Um, but I wanted what I wanted to ask you is about some of your mentors in this profession, because you do mention in that column that you worked with both Keith Mobley and Ron Moore, and that they both had an influence on the way you approach this discipline. So could you talk to our listeners a little, a little bit about those two mentors or others you've had and, and how they've influenced uh, how you approach this? Yeah, so I think one of the one of the struggles that most maintenance managers and others, you know, period professionals at the end of the day have is we don't build up a, a network of both formal and informal mentors. And um, it kind of actually goes back and I make it more personal. Um, when I spent my career, the bulk of my career, the first part of my career, I should say, working at Mars. So Snickers, Kittles, Pedigree, Whiskers, Waltham, and things like that. And Mars had a mentoring program at the time. And during that, you know, I was mentoring a number of people. But I kind of, one day the light bulb went off to me and I said, you know, I really don't have anybody that's mentoring me. You know, so I went over to I went over to HR and I had a conversation with, with Bill. I'm not going to tell you his last name, but uh, he's a great guy still out there. Uh, he's actually retired now. But anyway, and I said, Bill, hey, I don't have a I don't have a mentor. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Jeff, he said, most people might need a mentor. You don't need a mentor because you have so many informal mentors. You know, you just have tons and tons of informal. And it's just an approach I've always had where. For example, like I might want to do something, uh, a particular project or something within the plant. And what I would do is I would go and present a proposal in a way to individuals. I might go to, for example, like to yourself and say, Tom, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And I would get that that feedback from you. And then I would build that in when I went over to see Jane and say, Jane, OK, what would you do here? You know, for example, and get that feedback and I would build it in. And then ultimately, at some point, I would present it to the leadership team. But everybody had already seen it. So at that point, it was pretty much rubber stamping to say, OK, boom, here it is. And but, you know, it's really and as one plant manager said, told me, he said, you know, you have like a, a bedside manner, a doctor that goes into the hospital and has a bedside manner, you know, and, and it's about, number one, being humble all the time, being humble, you know, and there's always an opportunity to learn from everybody. So that's the mentoring piece. And so when we get into when we talk about great individuals like Keith Mobley and Ron Moore and lots of others from Mescalante and, you know, Doc Palmer and, you know, Tom Moriarty and all the other columnists, for example, that are part of plant services, it's the same kind of thing. We, you know, uh, Palmer and I worked together in the past. 
doing things. And, you know, he has his approach. I, I look at it and sometimes think about it, you know, not necessarily exactly the same as Doc, but we're very much aligned in how we think. Um, Keith Mobley. So the story on how I came to meet Keith Mobley was at the time I was like many other people in, in the maintenance world. I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, mm-hmm. and so with regard to that, I went out and I, I said, OK, I knew that I was getting hammered by the late night calls and all the other things I'd taken over maintenance and from an engineering role. And with regard to that, the 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 managers, you know, they need to say in the morning meetings, I felt like I was I took it personal. You know, the, the equipment didn't run well and that the. Uh, you know, we didn't have the reliability we needed and our costs were higher. And, you know, so it, it was almost like a, a saber that pierced my heart, you know, in the mornings whenever we had this. And I just said, you know, I have to fix this. So I went out and I started looking for, for help. Again, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so with regard to that, you know, I, I went out and brought in a consulting group to help me. We went through an assessment process. We went through to develop the plan of improvement, how we're going to approach things. And within that, there were specific areas. For example, I can always remember a caramel cooker, you know, where we'd actually cook the caramel for Snickers. And what was really wild about it is that, you know, it it was a constant problem. And, of course, it was associated because it was a a reliability issue. It was associated with maintenance and incorrectly so. And so I brought Keith in and we did an FMEA, talking about FMEAs on the caramel Mm -hmm. cooker. And I'll always remember the maintenance technician coming to me uh, who was part of that analysis and saying, Jeff, you know, can we talk about this data? And I said, what do you mean, can we talk about this data? And he said, he said well, you know, it's not us. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's operations. Operations is not changing over the tank properly. They're not doing the CIPs, the cleaning place procedure. They're not doing all these things. And that's what's causing the failure. And that's what the FMEA pointed out. And I said, well, do you have data? And he said, yeah, we got data all day long. And I said, well, let the data speak for itself, you know. And mm-hmm. so, so that was my first encounter, really, with with Keith, and it it was awesome, you know. And and I've always, you know, obviously Keith is uh, pretty much very well retired now, but he still you see posts on LinkedIn and other things. And and so, mm-hmm. as part of that, it, it's incredible those those you have those memories. But at the same time, how do you continuous? How do you become a continuous learner? At the end of the day. And, you know, so Ron Moore, for example, I never really worked directly with Ron. Uh, when we started people in processes, Ron and I became somewhat friends, I guess you could say, uh, maybe more so acquaintances in, in a lot of ways, too. But initially, but what would happen is, is Ron would share his wisdom and I would always try to pick up on that. And through it was presentations at the University of Tennessee or whatever it might be. And, you know, conference, meeting at conferences and have conversations and things. And from his book, for example, we talked about the idea of using the line level, FMEA. Um, and I've used that successfully with a number of clients uh, where you actually elevate, elevate it up. And out of the, the maintenance realm and a specific asset by itself. And as we talked about in the article, we were able to do, uh, you know, take and determine, for example, like in one particular bottling plant, they had a lot of issues. There were not maintenance issues. Sure, maintenance had their own problems. And but it was also, you know, HR took forever to replace employees that left. The company didn't pay well. And so there was a constant turnover. And then they ended up putting temporaries. The temporaries wouldn't get any training. Uh, for example, the logistics side, because of the limited floor space, what would happen is, is they they wouldn't have places to put the product. 
And then they would bring the truck that was bringing the, the cans to package the beverage or the bottles to package the beverage would, you know, be the ones who would take away the product. And so if the trucks were late or whatever the case may be, you had nowhere to put the product. So you had to stop the lines or you ran out of raw materials. So, so, so there's all these things that came out of, for example, like the line level or the, the plant level FMEA that were not specific to an asset, you know, but at the same time, they created downtime and they, they caused excessive cost and the unavailability of the equipment as well. In some cases, not necessarily related to logistics, but there were a whole lot of factors, you know, that came out of that. And, and out of it, just like you would do in an FMEA, you generate an action plan. And from that action plan, here's all the things we need to go fix. And, and HR looks at you, you know, their eyes glaze over and like, we're already working as hard as we can, Jeff. Well, okay, but how do we shorten the cycle? You know, what do we do differently to make sure that we get in requests and we can do value stream analysis, for example, to say, okay, as part of this whole process to replenish somebody, what can we do to take out dates at the end of the day? Or what can we do to train people better as temporaries when they come in? And what's the progression path, you know, for a temporary to become an employee? You know, if they, if they bring them in through a temporary agency and they're great, then how do you transition them to employees where they become great operators and then maybe some point great maintainers and on and on and on, you know? Yeah, well, all the things you're citing with these examples, it, it, it just reinforces your attitude towards maintenance and reliability. That is, it is not a single sector issue. You know, like you said, you, you you may work in the maintenance sector, but to solve some of these problems you're talking about, you do have to have contact with operations, with HR, with supply chain. And that's the more you ask why, 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 the more you dig deeper, the more you apply uh, maintenance best practices and principles, RCM, FMEA, the more you realize, yeah, you get that holistic view of the plant. What I'm also hearing you say, too, is that it's a relief to discover sometimes where the heart of the issue is. And I say not the people that, that are behind the issue. It's just the heart of the issue because your reaction when you found out what the issue with the caramel cooker was not, hey, those guys in operations are screwing me up. It's, oh, my gosh, we figured out where the problem is. I can sleep now <laughs> and I don't have to feel bad about not being able to maintain the asset. We found how to maintain it as a team and let's go do it now. One of the challenges, too, that every organization faces as part of that is even though, as a great example, you know, the Mars world, what happened there is that, you know, many organizations, if you don't figure out ways to sustain this and how to, how do you build at the CEO level, at the C-suite level, at the VP, uh, you know, the director level, how do you build in this culture? around, you know, asset reliability and improving reliability overall, because as a great example, even in the Mars world, we did all this great stuff. And I'll always remember a technician who came to me when we first started our journey. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, Jeff, he said, we did this 15 years ago. And I said, yep, guess what? We get to do it again, too. And uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, that's what we do to people at the end of the day, right? We, we constantly give them these cycles, if you will, you know, some new manager comes in and it's his or her approach. And then, you know, they leave on, they leave. And most managers, I think, you know, the maintenance managers stay in a role probably on average about two years mm. and then they move on to somewhere else. And that was for me, the same kind of thing. I moved from, from a management, from a maintenance manager role to an operations manager role. Uh, but then I left the business to start a people and processes. And in the meantime, you know, when I, basically left the business, they had brought a new plant manager in and the new plant manager says, you know, well, we don't need to spend all this money. Um, you know, basically that individual had never spent any time in the plant to truly understand the cost. We had already harvested all the low hanging fruit. 
And they basically said, well, we can cut the budget by 20 percent. And I'm like, wow, it wasn't the maintenance budget. They cut the whole plant budget. And, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to produce X number of widgets. You got so many Snickers bars you need to make, so many Skittles, so many Starbursts. So it takes you so much production labor to do that. Where's the one lever they get to pull? Well, it's in maintenance. You know, so they basically said, we're not going to maintain things. Initially enough, what happened was is when the new plant manager after that, after the, that individual stayed about three years, so this is what I think you pretty much get, you know, when you take a, a very proactive organization and then you, you say, okay, we're not going to spend money anymore. We're going to save our way to prosperity, which we know never works. Oh. Uh, you know, what happened is then that, that new plant manager came in and they told the business, said, well, I need to spend about $30 million to get this plant back where I can run it again. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those famous sayings, right? The old cliche, pay me now or pay me later. But <laughs> at the end of the day, we'll still have to do the same work. You know, so it's, it's, but you're right. It's, it's so real um, for not just for it not to be a maintenance thing. I was listening to a story uh, from one of our individuals just the other one of our team members just the other day and he was talking about, you know, that it has so much waste and they chased down all the waste and they found it was really due to people not operating the assets correctly, not following the right operations procedures and so forth. And it was just so much opportunity there. And they were able to harvest a lot of that so much so that companies find, uh, you know, we, we talk about the hidden plant, right? All the time. And, and we find so many companies that, they, they don't believe the numbers initially, but then they realize, wow, you know, we, we don't have to go invest in new capital um, assets in a new location because we're, we're now maximizing the capacity that we already had. We just weren't leveraging it in the right way. And I share with you one of the biggest challenges, and I heard I hear this all the time, too, when we talk about from the plant floor, and it's the personal accountability piece. Mm. You know, we tend to be conflict averse. And, and we don't want to hold people accountable. But in reality, I'll, I'll share with you, we talk about mentors. And one of the best mentors I ever had was a boss. And, and I don't know, you know, some people say, well, how would you call him a mentor? But at the end of the day, he was. And what he did for me is he was tough. You know, he didn't let me slide. He set expectations and held me accountable to achieve those expectations. And I'll always remember him. We're friends to this day. He's long retired, but we're still friends to this day. And, you know, and and he was by far, you know, he held me accountable. And I learned from that, you know, and that's something we tend not to do. We tend to managers, especially young managers, tend to look the other way, you know, and say, well, you know, and what happens is, is that you don't realize it, but people are watching you as a manager. And they, if you're, you know, if you have a toxic apple, as they say, you taint the whole orchard, you know, mm-hmm. you taint all the apples and, and it just takes that one bad apple. And, and because they're watching in the fact that you don't do anything, then they give up, you know, the other, the other apples, they, begin, they basically give up and they become, they kind of just fall back and, and, and you lose the opportunities that you have. Well, what you're saying ties back into your column for the for the November December issue, how to overcome your workers' natural resistance to change. Uh, a quick story: I was just down at the ERC Industry Forum event, uh, which tracks uh, as many sea level workers as frontline practitioners, and that column drew some attention from people I was talking with when I would show them the, the latest issue that we had down there. Uh, a lot of the challenge people framed down this event was that when you focus on things like changing your maintenance practices, changing your, digitizing your operations a little bit here and there. Um, 
embracing sustainability initiatives. Uh, everyone kept saying, well, the toughest part is implementing change with the teams. <laughs> and and they didn't look at it as impossibility, but they all said, yeah, here, this is an issue. And, and when people would see that page of the magazine, Jeff, I, I had two or three people at least say, uh, can I have that from you? <laughs> can I have that issue? <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 interesting that you you point that out about challenging people because that's something which I wish I would have heard more at that event, which is that when it comes to these goals you want to meet, especially your sustainability goals, why not challenge your employees? Best, middling, worst, I mean, give them a challenge. Show them that you're there for a good reason and that, all right, if mistakes are made, you learn from them, you keep going. That's get, get, Give them the mission and challenge them. Yeah, so how do you know you bring up a good point? How do you how do you become a learn learning organization where you can um, make mistakes? And as long you know, we just make sure that we we obviously you know don't want to injure people or anything from those kind of mistakes. But we want to make sure that we have the opportunity to fail mm-hmm. and learn from that. And mm-hmm. when we talk about change management, you know the I always say that people buy into what they help create. And many times we don't allow people that opportunity. We don't put them on a team. We don't say, you know, and it's, it's a great example. I just had a conversation uh, only about a week ago around, you know, auditing and, and taking three work orders out of the stack that are completed and walking them down. And, and they said, well, we're going to have we're going to have the manager and their supervisors do that. And I said, okay, but what about the technician? What about the planner? What about the person from the storeroom? And, and they said, well, no, we're going to do it where if something's wrong, we're going to have it and we're going to have a conversation later with the technician or the planner or whatever indirectly. And I'm like, but you're losing a heck of an opportunity because yeah. when you're walking that down, you can take those people with you. And the focus shouldn't be on the individual. The focus first should be on did the business processes work? Did we initiate the work order in the right way? Did we properly scope it? Did we identify the child asset that was necessary? Um, did we plan the work? Did we get the materials when the materials kit in the stage? Did we schedule it properly? Did we have time to do the work? Was it coordinated? All these factors. But what happens is, is that when we take the planner, when we take the technician, when we take the storeroom operator, even the plant manager, we can set expectations in a coaching manner using mentoring since we're talking about that where we can say, okay, you know, hey, that ceiling tile is in the case of a building is, is stained. You know, we, we should get that replaced. Um, you know, and maintenance technicians and other people tend to have blinders on. And so what happens is, is they go out and they, you know, kind of just look at where they're going and, and they don't really look around and say, wow, you know, I hear that bearing going over here or I, I see that, you know, this seal is leaking on this pipe or things like that. And that's where you can train people. And, I actually had another mentor since you talk about that. I used to have a, a, a plant manager who was originally a controls engineer, controls engineering manager when I was a controls engineer. And later he became a plant manager. And I, I reported to him at that point, too, at a different height, matter of fact. And we would go out together and he would set those expectations. And later, when I would go out, for example, like with planners or other people uh, in coaching, you know, through people and processes, I would walk the plant floor with those individuals. And and as a great example, I was in a mine here in Central Florida, and they had a rock washing station, and there was a beater bar up on the top, and they were over looking at a, a pump, you know, and a motor mount, and how they're going to do plan the job and that type of thing. And I eased away, and at this 
uh, agitator bar, there was a guard. And it, interestingly enough, there was a small hole in the guard. And I mm. could see that the belt was broken. You know, it was almost broken. And it was just mm. barely hanging on with the webbing. And so when they came over to me, I asked them, I said, well, you know, uh, do you need this when you start back up? And they said, yeah, we've got to have that. And I said, well, you need to get somebody to fix the belt. And I showed it to them and they said, how did you see it? And I said, I was looking for it. I was looking for it. And so the challenge gets to be is how do you teach people to look for things? How do you teach people to understand, okay, are we following the process? And I'll share this with you too. What I find is, is that people want to do the right thing. Okay. And so what they're doing is if they're working around the process is typically because something in the process is not right. And so you need to go back and fix the process, hence the audit piece. And that way it enables them to do the job the way you expect them to do it. And it's another challenge. And even my, my good friend, Doc, and I talk about this all the time, uh, you know, how do you rely on the skills of the craft, but yet still set a standard? Mm-hmm. You know, because if we think about planning and scheduling, and actually the organization I was in the last couple of weeks, same kind of thing. They said we struggle with planning because, you know, the, the technicians don't want to follow the plan. Yeah. Well, that's because we really didn't work with the technicians to develop the plan. We didn't give them an opportunity to buy in. We gave them a gift and said, here's the plan. And they said, I know how to do my job. But the real challenge is, is how do we take those individuals and get them all doing it the same way? Because if Tom does it his way and Jeff does it his way and Alexis does it her way at the end of the day and it fails, which way caused it to fail? Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to have one right way to do it. But I'm not trying to cure the creativity of the crafts. If right. Tom has a better way, then let's all get together and agree that's the better way. Build it into the process, build it into the job plan. And we've all agreed. And now we all go out and do it the same way. And yeah. that way we can guarantee the longevity of the reliability of the assets that we're trying to, to nurture and preserve. Right. And we all agree that job plan is a living document. As I've heard you and Doc both say that as you find improvement that can grow, that's not going to be a static one and done document. It's going to be alive. It's going to have to be. And I like to say to that end, I like to say that, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect job plan. There's always opportunity to improve it. And I want to go back and touch on one thing that you sort of mentioned and you went towards, and that was around the defect elimination side. Hmm. And I know I've seen uh, Joel Levin, you know, another great individual. I've seen Joel talk about this, too. But, you know, we've made a mistake in a lot of ways over the years of maintenance, and we finally learned from it. I think most of us have learned from it, but it's still an opportunity, especially when you think about the number of people that are moving through the different positions and, you know, who was a maintenance manager two years ago is no longer the maintenance manager. But on the defect elimination side, as Winston Day said in his book, Just Don't Fix It But Improve It, he talked about, you know, that it's not about planning and scheduling more work. It's about eliminating the need to do that. And so even when you think about, you know, you see the the PF curve models that now have the S, you know, the specified design install, you know, and so forth. And then it's the PF curve. From an RCM perspective, that's really not inclusive. You know, the the design and everything else is not really inclusive in a PF curve. But anyway, it it highlights the point of how do we design for reliability? You know, at the end of the day, how do we make sure that one of the sites that we work with uh in the past, they they had geology issues with the ground when they built a plant, and they had to take $14 million out of the plant construction budget that was going to be used for, you know, stainless steel and, and more rigid bases and that kind of thing for the equipment and go in and fix the geology of the ground. 
And so what happened was, is then short of that, they installed, for example, like carbon steel, which quickly rusted away and, and, and other, ish, uh, other installation methods. And what happened was, is then that made it a maintenance issue because mm. they couldn't keep the, run, the equipment running because they couldn't keep it aligned. They couldn't keep the bases stable. They couldn't, you know, and on and on and on. And the operators couldn't operate it well because it was falling apart on them. But again, maintenance was supposed to fix that, right? And so it comes back to the conversation is how how do we actually, rather than focus on more planning and scheduling or, you know, more preventive maintenance, how do we make sure that we never get into the state where the equipment's going to fail? You know, how do we make sure that, and we can't prevent all failures, obviously, but, you know, the focus should be more to the front end is how do we make sure we operate it right? How do we make, how do, you know, how do we engineer it properly? How do we make sure we've got solid bases? You know, we've done the laser alignment as part of the installation, you know, and so forth. Uh, if we look to, we take places like universities, it's a great, mm. another great example. You know, they can't, I mean, it's basically a low cost provider at the end of the day. You know, who can sell me the part in the least expensive way that's possible? It's not about best value, but least cost. And what happens then is now in the storeroom, for example, you have a mismatch of parts, literally. You know, I mean, and you have so much duplication, but yet the mounting is just slightly different for this versus that. And yes, you can overcome that with standards, but unfortunately not everybody has their standards, construction standards that they should really abide by. But again, that's where the focus is how do we make sure that we're doing the right stuff on the front end to think about total life cycle cost versus, you know, just making it, a, unfortunately, a maintenance problem at the end of the day. So. Well, and now you've got an edu- educational series coming up pretty soon, which wraps a lot of these concepts together and also adds in uh, a, a strong element of leadership. Um, as you mentioned before, a lot of times the maintenance managers don't have the mentoring support once they once they get in those positions. Uh, it's a four-part series called Maintenance and Reliability for Managers, and it kicks off in March. Could you tell our listeners uh, some about that series, where they can find information about it? Sure. And thank you for mentioning that, Tom, because it's so important. Um, you know, we hear all the time that we just don't know where to start. And, you know, from a, from a maintenance manager perspective, in addition, that course is great for, you know, I don't necessarily call it a prep course for the mm-hmm. CMRP, the Certified Maintenance Reliability Professional, but it definitely, you know, touches on all the parts of that because it was it, the body of knowledge was actually used along with other things like GFMAM and other things like that, ISO 55000. Some of those standards are built into the methodologies within the course. But what I want to say about that course is many people use that course as a initial uh, pass into their journey for reliability. What do you mean by that? Well, we've got lots of cases where uh, I'll use one in particular. I actually presented a couple of years ago with this at the uh, Society for Maintenance Reliability Conference. But what happened is, as an individual, he brought his plant manager. He was the maintenance manager, brought his plant manager and brought his planner to a public class, just like we're talking about. This particular one is um, it's located in Dallas. Uh, he brought it, brought those people that happened to be in Ohio at the time and uh, that particular class, and they got excited about it. They learned. Here's the different parts and pieces. What makes the class so cool, Tom, is the fact that you go for a week, for three days, and then you disappear for, you know, basically six weeks, and then you come back for the class. And ideally, you can have a project. So what you get is you get the benefit of actually doing some projects. So the business is getting a return in addition to the return coming from the training itself. You know, okay. so 
as part of that, you know, and then they get to present. So they present every time they come back. Hey, this is where I'm at with that, with this particular project I'm working on, whatever it is. And then they get feedback, both from the instructor and from their peers that are in the class. Hmm. And, and so, you know, OK, well, we try that. And here's where we struggle to so think about it this way. And so that becomes very, very powerful. And then, you know, you ideally should be in a great state to state the CMRP, you know, when you finish the four parts. But it's led to many organizations use it. And it happens that particular organization where, where that maintenance manager came, what they did is they then brought it back to their plant. And they opened it up and they did it within their plant. Then they opened it up for the regional plants around that and started bringing them into that. And then, then that organization continued and the executives got excited about it because they saw the change. They saw the change going on with the region. So then now that they, they put in a reliability management structure, they dedicated resources to improve the reliability because they were getting such great returns on all the activities that were happening. And then they spread it out across the, the continent in the U.S. And some of Canada, and now every plant manager is required to attend that course. You know, so it is the foundational, and we do that course every year for them. And they've been doing it every year now for, you know, I would say for the last probably five years, if I remember correctly. So mm-hmm. it's been awesome. And, and then other, we used to do it in Houston sometimes, and certain organizations, they would put two or three people in every time we offered it, and, you know, publicly. And it was a way that they could change their culture. You know, they were slowly but surely changing the culture because everybody got the same message at the end of the day. Um, very cool. And that kicks off pretty soon, right? Uh, it is. It's coming up in March. Uh, the uh, I don't remember the exact date, but obviously we can share that link with you or whatever. Um, it's part of the podcast. But the uh, it's incredibly powerful. And even if you couldn't make the first session, you can still sign up for the course and, and come back and make up the first session. Uh, you know, on the next round of courses. So that's one of the cool things about it is you have that flexibility too, to a certain degree. So, yep. Excellent. Yeah, that's good to know. I, um, I'm i trying to find the exact dates myself too, but we will post those dates in the podcast notes for everyone to go to. And for more information, they can find it at peopleandprocesses.com, right, Jeff? There'll be a link yeah, there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you the date exactly here. I can look it up very quickly. Um, so it's uh, March 7 through 9 is the first one. And All you right. can find that at... Uh, peopleandprocesses.com slash MRM. Okay. That stands for Maintenance and Reliability for Managers course. So anyone should be sure to go out there and check out the MRM link on peopleandprocesses.com. Um, I do have one more question for you, Jeff, and it's going to lean a little bit more towards the personal side in that I have seen a number of your presentations at conferences, um, at the SMRP show, the Reliable Plant show, Marcon. Um, and I've seen you sort of stop the room when you start talking about why we do what we do. And, and to paraphrase what you've said, I hope I captured it closely enough. At one point you normally get to, you say, we're not in the asset health business. We're in the family health business. And you could hear just a pin drop when, when people digest that because, you're speaking to people who believe that clearly already that yes this is a job it's a profession we like doing where a lot of us are engineering oriented or engineers professionally um but you know the reason why we do this thing it's 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 so that people can live their lives and have good family lives too they go home safe after a day's work uh you have to wake up fewer 
uh, fewer times at 2 a.m. To, to rescue the asset, hopefully, if ever, if, if you get reliability going. So that always struck me as really powerful, Jeff. And it's some, it's, it's, it's a, it's a dimension of empathy that comes out in the columns you write for us too, where you, you never lose sight of that mission that we're here for, for people first. Yeah. So it's incredibly important that people succeed. And that's, that's really a personal mission for me. And we even, our, Tagline within people and processes is make plant reliability your success. And, you know, so it's how do you how do you balance, you know, the the work that you do and how do you make sure you're doing it in the best way you can? So that's one of our goals is how do we educate people? How do we coach? How do we mentor them to become truly successful in what they do? And then at the same time, you know, and, and there's so many great, there's so many great resources and so many great leaders. And Bob Chapman, you know, was one, um, you know, and you can obviously get to all the TED Talks. You know, I'm so saddened. I'll share this with you very quickly. I'm so saddened when I see that statistics show that maintenance managers, for example, only read about one book a year. You know, and, and I read many books a year and it's part of that because I'm always trying to stay up on the, you know, the the thoughts and the processes and the technologies and that type thing. But, you know, you're right. At the end of the day, you know, reliable plants a safer plant. But it's, you know, and I, there's just so many stories. And if you if you uh, have access to OSHA, for example, and just all the different uh events that happen and you look at you know so many tragedies or you know injuries and things like that that it was just so needless at the end of the day because somebody didn't do something right or some process wasn't followed or they, the company didn't even have processes around mm-hmm. that uh which is sad you know and i'm reminded i'm reminded of a company that is based in atlanta uh, and it happens that they had a plan in india and the the vp for safety had to go over to india because they were just killing too many people. And the plant manager really struggled to understand. He says, you know, you want me to spend all this money on guarding and, you know, machine safety and that type of thing. And he said, you know, I can just go out here and get another person. You know, we have so many people in India that I can just go get another person. And, you know, that, that VP of safety was like, you know, but we, is, we cannot kill people. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable for us to maim people, to harm people, you know, but, when we think about that and we think about the human aspects of it, which is at the end of the day, we hope we're doing all the right things. You know, in reality, when you think about it, you know, the the, the real challenge is, is that, you know, you, you can pass away today and, you know, truthfully in six months, they're liable to have somebody right back in the same shoes that you walk, the same path. You know, so how do you do the right things for you and how does an organization, how do we do the right things for those individuals? Um, we see so many times where, you know, someone gets hurt or they get, uh, you know, potentially killed, uh, you know, simply because we didn't follow the right maintenance practices or we didn't make sure the equipment was reliable or we didn't have safety. You know, and, and one of the things that I think is really important, too, from an RCM perspective, uh, reliability centered maintenance is that we know that, you know, it, when we talk about protective devices that are set up to protect individuals, protect the plant, protect whatever, you know, many of them are in a failed state. Obviously, you go into chemical plants, they're much more rigorous about their approach. But in, in other plants, they may not even know about all their protective devices. And then they don't even have a maintenance program for them. So they don't know if they're in the failed state, as an example. And we call this hidden failures in RCM. Uh, you know, even when we go back to just basic PMs, you know, 
we know that 40 to 60, 40 to 60 percent of the PMs don't add any value. They don't address the likely failure modes, and that's a common issue. Wow. And if we look at the two, you know, just at the, where I was at with the university, um, they have a generic program. What does that mean? Well, only for very critical assets do they have unique PMs. So they have the same PM for a fan, a different PM for pumps, but it doesn't matter what the operating context is for the pump. It's just the same PM. You know, if we have 1,100 or 11,000 pumps, it doesn't matter. The PM is still the same. And the problem is, is we don't take into, into consideration the operating context. You know, is it, is it, you know, run all the time or does it never run? You know, and then we address that because the failure modes are different based on that. Um, so it's the same thing for protective devices. You know, how do we make sure we're doing the right maintenance at the right time? And we're checking to see, you know, we're, we're checking to see if it's actually operational because it's hidden. It's not normal for us to, to know that it's in the failed state. Um, so one, I'll add this too, and I know that most organizations struggle, but we struggle with this, but we manage maintenance by managing failure modes. And we truly have to understand the failure modes. And so what I encourage people to do is to take an introductory RCM class. You may never do RCM in your life, and that's fine. But what RCM does is it gives you a framework. We take RCM2 and the seven questions. It gives you a framework from which to think about PM optimization mm-hmm. and at least understand the function, a function of failure, and then a failure mode. And then out of that, you can go through a decision tree. How do I make a decision on what strategy I use? And that's groundbreaking. You know, and unfortunately, that came out, Tom, you know, in 1978, RCM2 mm-hmm. in 1984. It's not new. It's nothing new about it. But yet, in many organizations, it might have well, it just it should have come out yesterday, literally, because nobody knows about it. You know, so wow. you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, and in, in, in you give an organization 20 years, you got a whole new generation in place that may be new to that, to that organization. The people may have changed enough, you know, so it's as you, as, I want to thank you, thank you for those references because for those listening who do want a framework, yeah, start start with this. It's 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 a familiar discipline. Uh, you talk to anyone who who is experienced with it, they'll share the resources. Well, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us today, Jeff, and uh, um, hopefully everyone listening got a taste of. Uh, the kind of topics Jeff writes about for plant services in both from the plant floor and the library of Ask Jeff columns. You can find all of his work for plant services under the heading from the plant floor or just search for his name on there. Uh, Just as importantly, go to peopleandprocesses.com. That's Jeff's company and you can find more information about what he what he offers there and um and be, make sure you go to the uh mrm link peopleandprocesses.com slash mrm for the maintenance and reliability management uh i'm sorry maintenance and reliability for managers four-part series which kicks off in march um one last question jeff will you be at marcon uh in about I a month i will i'm actually looking forward to it i hope to see you there uh again but the yeah. uh I'm doing a workshop around change management. It's funny that you talk about that. And mm-hmm. what I'm more excited about, actually, I, I love getting an opportunity to do education and help people again succeed. But we've got uh, a couple people from one of our, our, our client groups out from Salt Lake that are coming over and they're going to they're going to accept their certification for their their. Uh, maintenance planning and scheduling certification through the University of Tennessee. So they've achieved that status and they get, and they're actually going to do a presentation with me uh, after they receive their certificate, you know, one of the learning sessions. And they're going to talk about all the great things they did to get there. 
you know, what they've done within their site and all the changes they've made. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing those guys, you know, share their story. Oh, that'll be great. No, I'm, I'm certainly planning on it at this point. Uh, got my plane ticket in my hotel, so I got every intention to be in there. Um, I'll mark I'll mark that session down for sure, too. Tammy uh, gave me a heads up that you would be presenting with, uh, with the Salt Lake City team, too. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, I look it's, forward to it. And thank you so much, Tom, for having me today. I appreciate the opportunity to share more with your with your audience. All right. Well, every, thank you again, Jeff. And thanks all you for listening. Until the next episode, have a great rest of the day, everyone. 